So we see here the continued ministry of Peter. You might have expected us to pick up right away with Paul after his conversion, after his meeting with Peter and James, and yet that takes a while. I think Luke is intentionally showing us that there are multiple layers of ministry going on in multiple locations, but the same God is behind all of them. And the same thing is happening today. We tend so often to focus on our immediate context or one thing that's happening and not recognize that God is at work in many places, in many ways, in many settings. And Peter himself is not even just limiting himself to one setting. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem, but rather he goes. We've seen him now traveling through Samaritan towns, preaching the gospel. And here he goes down into the coastal plain of Sharon, and he is ministering to the churches here and there in any way that he can. He is preaching the gospel. He's comforting. He's healing. He's continuing to do the apostolic work. And what we have in this passage is two representative episodes, if you will. Many, many other things undoubtedly happen in the ministry of Peter, but this is just two to kind of stand in for them all. And if you uh, were at all part of our Sunday school class over the summer, looking at uh, women and men and the Bible, and I showed you how Luke so often will give us twin stories, uh, whether it's Jesus teaching with parables, or whether it's a story of a healing or something, where there's one with a woman and one with a man, one with a man and one with a woman, and they're often together in this way, showing that, that Jesus came for male and female alike, and Luke continues that into the book of Acts. We see the same thing here. The healing of a man, the raising of a woman to life. Jesus' ministry here continues through his church. And when we have these healings, we've talked about what the significance of them is, and we've talked about why they happened and their effect. Often, as in both of these cases, the effect seems to be that people come to faith. Sometimes, for example, the man begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, it seems that the one being healed comes to faith. Here, at least Tabitha is already a believer, so this is not entirely outreach, and we don't know whether Aeneas is or not, but it seems that probably he is, or it might have been mentioned. So it begins with him going into Lydda, and this is southwest of Jerusalem. And I want to point out right off the bat that both of these accounts very much mirror or echo accounts of Jesus' miracles. And, and I know that you've probably noticed that, well, the text was being read, and if not, as soon as I point it out, you're going to go, well, doy, of course. Peter went there among them all and came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Of course, this reminds us of the words of Jesus. You remember the time Jesus was in Capernaum. He was in Peter's own house, actually. And the place was packed, and they were, they were coming through the roof. Not going through the roof, but coming down through the roof. A man who was paralyzed, just like Aeneas, brought him in, moved aside some of the tiles, dug through the roof, and started to lower him into Jesus' presence. In that case, Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Pause for audible gasp. And then people thought, who? Who is this man that thinks he can forgive sin? And Jesus said, what's easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or rise? take up your bed and walk, or roll up your mat, 
Or in this case, in the NIV, get up and take care of your mat. Or in the ESV, rise, make your bed. Get up, take your bed. You don't need that mat anymore. You can now walk. You've been healed. The miraculous power of Jesus Christ has healed you. Now, by this point in the text, I would say that we, we can assume the pattern that was established in chapter 3, that where there is healing, there is the preaching of the gospel, and the healing and the kind of buzz that follows is used to promote the gospel, and we see the effects of that as many people turn to the Lord. Very brief little account, and then we move on. Now there was in Joppa, about 10 miles away on the coast called Jaffa now, had one of the best meals of my life there, uh, a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. Aside, I would go by Tabitha. <laughs> she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Now, Ten miles sounds like nothing to us. It's ten miles to Mason. And uh, if you're sick, an ambulance will grab you and bring you ten miles to a hospital like that. Peter's doing this on foot. And they call for him, and they bring him, and we don't know if they were expecting a miracle. We know they've already washed her, which is what you do for a burial, so they're preparing for that. Perhaps they just heard one of the, the apostles, the rock on which the church is, is built is nearby, and we've just lost a bedrock member of our church. He should know about it. He should be here to pay his respects, and he should minister to us. We're not sure exactly what their expectations were, but we do know why this woman was such a big deal. This is, by the way, the only occurrence of the feminine form of the word disciple in the whole Bible to describe Tabitha. There are other women called disciples, but it's in the plural and it involves a mixed group. This woman is singled out with the feminine form of Methetes, and she's said to be a disciple of Jesus. She's full of good works and acts of love, acts of charity. And that's a, an idiom that we kind of have, but kind of not. Sort of like with Barnabas, how he's the son of encouragement. And I said, yes, we say son of all the time, but we usually mean different things. And I'm often told I'm full of certain things, and, and we mean that in a different way as well. Uh, but what they meant with full of was usually that it was someone's uh, overarching characteristic. And so someone who was very, very old was said to be old and full of years. Barnabas was said to be full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And this woman, Tabitha, is said to be full of good works. And even if you'd never met her, if you'd shown up right after she died, you would have known that. Because all these people gathered in, weeping, mourning, and when Peter arrived, they weren't like, aren't you Peter? Can you tell us about the time that you walked on water? They said, no, let us tell you about Tabitha. Look at the robe she made for me. Look at this thing that she made for me. Let me tell you about what she did for me to minister to me. If they were going to bury her that day, which would have been the custom, bury her before sundown, this sort of stands in for the funeral when we get up and talk about how kind someone was and tell stories about them. But we see here Echoes of the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Peter had been present for that one as well. Right down to the fact that two men come and get Peter. Remember, two men came and got Jesus, and he was being brought back to Jairus' house. 
and then learned that Jairus' daughter had died. And again, he follows the script left by Jesus. Mourners, get out. And he gets down and he prays. And this really is wild to me. Jesus, of course, spoke Aramaic, it seems, in general, like everyone else around him. And when he prayed for Jairus' daughter, it tells us he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, arise or get up. Which is, just, I just get chills thinking about him saying that. Little girl, get up. Talitha kumi. In this case, what does Peter say? But Tabitha kumi. One letter difference. One letter difference, and he is, he is continuing the ministry of Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. Then we see that the effect here was just the same as it was with, with Ananias, that, that when people hear what happened, they turn to the Lord. When people know that someone was dead and is now alive, it shakes them out of their, their stupor. It shakes them out of their self-worship and self-reliance and makes them say, I need a Savior. And as they see the claims of Jesus backed up by evidence, they turn to Jesus in faith. Now, when Jesus raised the girl from the dead, it served to amplify his reputation. When Jesus uh, gave the, the paralytic use of his legs and said, arise and take your mat and walk, it blew everyone's mind. They said, this guy teaches with his own authority. This man is powerful. But when Peter does the healing, none of it blows back on him. The result is not Peter getting more famous. It's people turning to Jesus. I think that is very much the mark of a true and humble ministry. Whether it's a pastoral ministry or whether it's a ministry that you have in your workplace or in your neighborhood. When you do good deeds, do people say, oh, wow. Bob is really a great guy. In this case, you're Bob. Or do people say, wow, Jesus, there's something to him. Because Bob won't stop going on and on about Jesus, and it's not just empty talk. He really cares. He really loves. And we see the opposite of Simon Magus. Remember that back in chapter 8? He did so many mighty things and convinced people that he was, in fact, a god. But in this case, Peter does even greater things and convinces people that Jesus is the Son of God, is great and mighty to save. Peter won't have your praise. He doesn't want the praise of men. And if you give it to him, he's like, here, take it back. Try again. Praise goes to him and him alone. And Peter, because he comes from a background of being nobody and nothing, is perfectly suited for this. 1 Corinthians 1, remember when Paul writes, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things he would consider, uh, God chose things the world would consider foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things uh, that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. God is flipping everything upside down. Peter was absolutely a nobody. Peter was a fisherman. I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but not a great one, right? Every time, except for when Jesus steps in, every time he comes in, he's like, nothing again. What are you going to do? He's thick-headed, 
He's quick to talk big and then not back it up. Again and again, he's rash, right? Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. Sure, come to me. I didn't think this through. Sploosh, down he goes. Jesus, I'll never betray you. Not every, everyone can turn and run, but I'll stay by your side to the death. First sign of trouble, swing, swing. This isn't working, I'm gone. No, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. Cue the rooster. This is, this is who he is, and yet he's the one, the first one, to give this great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's only on the basis of that confession, turning to Christ, resting on the rock that is Christ, that Jesus is going to build anything at all on this guy. In Luke 22, remember, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And that, that second you, I've prayed for you, is in the plural. And then he goes into the garden, he prays for all of us. We're all nobody in the grand scheme of things. I don't care how important you are, there's seven billion people who haven't heard of you. But Jesus prayed for us. And we have the Holy Spirit in us. The same Spirit that was in Peter. And so the question might come up. I, I have to at least broach it. What about today? Can this sort of thing happen? Are people miraculously healed? Do some have the gift of healing? Uh, yeah, of course. If I didn't believe that, why would I bother to go and pray for someone who was sick? Why would we bother to act like God is in control and God is able to do all things? What about today? Could someone be raised from the dead? There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us not to pray that that would happen, although I've never had anyone ask me to, even in the immediate wake of someone's death. Clearly, Peter here is prompted by the Spirit and knows that when he says, Tabitha, arise, that she will, and recognize that God does not always heal. Remember, this is just two instances amongst many, many, many things that happened in the early church. And years have gone by since Acts chapter 1, and many people have died, including Stephen. Many people have died like that, untimely deaths. Not everyone was healed. Not everyone was raised, not by a long shot. God chooses when he will act miraculously and when he will simply welcome us home with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we see here that prayer is powerful. That prayer is not something to be discounted. We keep on seeing that again and again. Science tells us, well, people who pray, they get sick less, they live longer, this, 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 this. But it must just be in their head. And then you have the blind studies where nobody knows who is praying for which group. And hell, they still got better quicker. I, I, I found myself through a bizarre series of emails and events down in San Antonio a few years ago, learning like, like trench medicine, like how to... to fix wounds when you got nothing but like a toothpick and a, a piece of string, you know, that kind of stuff, the field medicine, the wild, interesting stuff. And, and it was really fascinating. And the guy who was teaching us, he, he was like a guy who goes around and teaches SWAT teams all over the world. And uh, he, he was showing us a lot of videos. I don't like blood, so I was getting a little woozy, but I remember some of them. And uh, one of them was a, a cop that he, he was responding to a call. He got shot in the neck. Just someone shot him out of the house. And he fell down behind his car, put his hand on his neck, and just started bleeding out. 
right? And, and, and there he was, his partner was next to him, but they couldn't leave because the guy in the house still had the gun. More and more cops were arriving, and a neighbor ran over, and someone was filming all this. And the neighbor's looking at him going, ah, and the, the other cop is kind of keeping one eye on him, saying, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay, while keeping an eye on the house. And the neighbor starts praying. And I mean, this guy must have been Pentecostal or one of the cool ones, because he just starts, he's just shouting, Lord, do not let this man die, keep this man from, and, and of course, we're told what he should have done is some weird medical judo move where you put the arm up here and then tie the thing and gauze and pack the thing. I don't know. But he said, don't be striped shirt guy. He's not doing any good. Praying like that, I believe in prayer, but if you pray and you don't do anything else, people just die. And I thought, I should say, no, I'm not going to. Uh, but I really should have. Because... Yes, sometimes you can pray and you can act. And if you just pray, I'll pray for you. And you don't help. You don't sit and listen. You don't offer food. You don't offer clothing. You don't do the material thing that you can do. It can be a lack of Christ-like faith. But sometimes there's nothing you can do but pray. And in those cases, prayer does help. Yes, prayer is powerful. John Piper says prayer is an expression of belief that Jesus turns things around. Prayer is an expression of belief that Jesus turns things around. If I don't believe that Jesus turns things around, don't bother to pray. But if I do believe that Jesus turns things around, how dare anyone say that's useless? Don't be like striped shirt guy just sitting there praying. Luther says miracles are recorded for us who are chosen so that we are edified when we learn and believe by them that in Christ we have a gracious, meek, loving, beneficent Lord who is able and knows how to help us. When we pray, we're praying to a Lord who knows what's best for us, who is mighty and who did all these miracles and who knows what we need in this moment. But I want to point out that the most important aspect of this passage is not the miracles. Not from my perspective. Yeah, we can talk about whether people are healed miraculously or raised from the dead today, but in this text, in this text most, most of the attention is on Tabitha and what it is that she's done. Because if Peter hadn't been nearby, or if Peter had said, I'm sorry, I can't make it, I've got other people I'm healing here, or, or if he had shown up and hadn't raised her from the dead... Her life would still have meant as much. We just didn't know, we wouldn't know who she is. We wouldn't be talking about her today. But her ministry to all of those women gathered together, showing each other and showing off the gifts that they'd received would still be remembered. Her work for the kingdom would still bring just as much glory to God without the miraculous. If it had just been acts of love, a woman who was full of mercy and kindness, James tells us that religion that is pure and acceptable to God is this, looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unpolluted by the world. That's, that's religion. It's not raising the dead and healing the sick miraculously. We believe that happened, but to live out your faith isn't for those high point moments. If I've if you've ever read about the, uh, the origin of the vineyard Christian movement, you've read about a guy who 
who got saved out of a, a life of, of sin and, and hedonism, and he came to love the Bible, read the Bible day and night, just, just immersed himself in the Bible, knew many passages of it by heart, knew the overarching story by heart. Just within a few months, he, he, he devoured it. He, he finally said, I got to go to church. So he went to a church, sat down. They said, hey, good to have you here. He said, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited. I've been reading this stuff, and I, I can't wait. And then the service started, and he's like, okay, all right, we're going to start with some announcements, all right, then some singing, got it. All right, now, now, now the guy gets up, and he's going to jaw at us for a while. Kind of expected that. All right, this must be, no, okay, we're done. And, and someone came up and said, well, what did you think? And he said, well, when do you do the stuff? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, the, the stuff, when do you do the, the Jesus stuff, the stuff, the stuff, all the, all this crazy stuff, when do we do the stuff? And I said, ah, we don't really do that stuff. And so he began a new movement, and they're very much about uh, the miraculous and, and miraculous signs and wonders and this sort of thing. But let me suggest that a church can gather together and do the stuff of being Christian churches without a miracle in sight, apart from the miracle of Jesus, the small matter of Jesus taking your dead heart and raising it to life. Taking an enemy of God and making someone who loves God and serves him and follows Christ with a cross on his or her shoulder. That's the stuff that we're called to do day by day. I'm not denying that there are miraculous gifts today. I'm not denying the existence of supernatural healings. I'm saying that the stuff of the Christian life is the stuff that Tabitha was doing day by day. In Grand Rapids, I knew a woman. She was, she was about my age. I was in my, my early mid-20s, and, and she didn't drive. She just she didn't like the idea. She, to this day, I bumped into her a while ago, still doesn't drive. So she took the bus everywhere. And one winter, she started noticing that people didn't have gloves on, and they were getting the bus in the whole time. You know, very cold, very cold. So she started just buying gloves. She'd have three, four, five pairs of gloves, different sizes, men's and women's, in her bag. And whenever she saw someone like that, she'd say, here. And then she would say, I'll pray for you. That was her ministry. I said to her one time, well, what are you telling them Burton Baptist Church is, is, is where you are and they should come? And no, no, I'm telling them about Jesus. Jesus loves them. Here's some gloves to keep your hands warm. No idea if anyone came to faith from that, but I know she was faith. I wouldn't be surprised if she was doing that today, continually. Little thing, little act of kindness. This is the sort of stuff they're talking about when Peter shows up at Tabitha's funeral. And so we see that there are definitely acts of service that would rise above the acts of miraculous healing in the grand scheme of things. In fact, there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do miracles in your name? And he'll say, yeah, but I don't know you. And there will be those who did no miracles in Jesus' name. But when he was naked, they clothed him. And when he was hungry, they fed him. And when he was in prison, they visited him. And when he was sick, they brought him soup. And they're going to say, when did all this happen? And he's going to say, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it for me. And then at the end of the, the passage, there's this little tag about a guy named Simon the Tanner. 
He gave her, he took her hand, raised her up, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now you might think, Simon Tanner, that's a really punchy name. That guy could be a movie star. Simon Tanner's not about to be a movie star. Tanners were bottom of the barrel. All right, the Talmud says, woe to one who is a tanner by trade. And if you know anything about it, there's two reasons why. One is uh, simply religious, continually dealing with all of these carcasses of animals made you continually unclean, and so you were a bit of a pariah. And the other is just you stunk. The chemicals and all the things used, it, it was just a stinky job, and being in there all the time made people stinky. I know that it's now become very serious because of the chemical groundwater contamination, but when I used to ride my bike past that Wolverine plant in Rockford, not knowing a thing about groundwater contamination, I would hold my breath. It was basically a tannery, just thousands of years later. But this guy, being a pariah, being, you know, don't, who are you going to go, stay with a tanner? Stay with me, come on. Peter stays with him. He stays with him for many days. And we see here that he then gives him the opportunity to exercise a spiritual gift of kindness. Tabitha has the spiritual gift of acts of mercy. Simon has the gift of hospitality. And in the church, the gift of hospitality has historically and continues today to be incredibly important. What happens is the church becomes a de facto or a truly an extended family for Christians. As they travel, they can stay with other Christians. They can be safe. They can avoid what in those days were great pitfalls, morally speaking, of inns and the sort of houses where one would pay to stay. And, and many times, I remember as, as a kid growing up, we had a, a visiting missionary, we had a visiting speaker, we had people from out of town who were coming to our church, they'd stay in our home. Always inconvenienced me, because they would sleep in my bed, and I'd get the sleeping bag in the basement. But I remember, I remember the, the conversations deep into the night learning about things that were going on on the other side of the world, learning about churches all over the country where these people had been, learning about hearing stories of people getting saved from all sorts of backgrounds and people being reconciled and, and all the stuff that God was doing. Hospitality fosters that, and we're losing it. I remember when we offered, uh, we said to the president of Judson College when he was coming here to speak to us about Adoniram Judson on, on the anniversary we said, uh, how about if we just give you, you know, kind of a meal voucher and you can go? He said, well, I'd rather spend some time with members of your church. Jerry came over. He and his wife came over. We had a wonderful time. We sat there and talked in our living room until super late. And it was a wonderful time. I remember when I worked for the radio station in Bay City. It was a Christian radio station. Early, early on, we had a concert. And a band, you probably have heard of them. They're, they're very, very famous. They came to town. Uh, they came to Midland Assembly of God. And they said, when we get there, we're going to be hungry, so we'd like to have some food. And the station manager, he was, he was in charge of the event. He said, well, what would you like? We'll supply something. He said, hey, whatever. Whatever people want to bring. And so basically, there's a big potluck. Members of the church all brought something, and it was awesome. As we're, as we're talking, we're learning about their ministry, about where they've been and, and where they're from and all of this stuff. And then three or four years later, they came back. And now they had like a manager 
and they had a rider. We need, you know, all the green M&Ms removed in the jar. and all the, Totally different deal. And I said to one of them, uh, after the concert, I said, hey, remember when we had that kind of potluck? And, and you and I were talking about, and he didn't remember the conversation, but he said, oh, man, I miss those days. I miss being able to sit and talk with people and not be cut off and in our little hotel suite and, and back in our little green room backstage. We can't lose that in the church. We have to be in each other's homes. This is what hospitality is, the welcoming of others into your home. It's another way that we see the stuff happening in the church. What makes the church the church? Fred Craddock, who taught at Emory University, said this, To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting our 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give up a cup of water to a shaky old man and uh, give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done with all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And perhaps one reason that we don't see more miracles in the church in the West today is because we're expecting the thousand dollars without ever putting any quarters in because we, we you know, i used to always go into kmart there was a bank of those quarter machines i'd turn all of them one time something just fell out someone had preloaded a quarter we're over here going come on how come we're not getting you got to put some quarters in we got to show love in little ways we have to show the lord that we love him and fear him Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Notice first that fear of the Lord and comfort of Holy Spirit aren't at odds. They go together well. And then the whole passage ends with this statement. It came known throughout all Joppa and they believed in the Lord. So we, we have the fear of the Lord placed before us. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're scared of God. Although it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It means such a reverence. Such a recognition of his holiness and his might that we tremble at his very word, even while we're comforted by his Holy Spirit. Let me close with a quote from Spurgeon. I pray that you who teach in the Sunday school, you who visit the poor, you who work in any way for God, may acknowledge your impotence for good and look for power from on high. To our hands, the Holy Spirit is the might. To our eyes, he is the light. We are but the stones and he the sling. We are the arrows, and he the bow. Confess your weakness, and you will be fit to be strengthened. Acknowledge your emptiness, and it will be a preparation for receiving divine fullness. 
Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. And yet with the Spirit of God, 25 cents at a time, whether through acts of love and mercy, giving little gifts, gloves or robes, the things that, that Tabitha was doing, the things that, that the church has been doing through the ages, the things that are happening down in the Love Clothing Center, or whether through raising the dead, Jesus is glorified. The Holy Spirit is at work. And the church is at peace, comforted by the Holy Spirit and walking in the fear of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these two stories of, of miracles. And Lord, they do embolden us to step out in faith and trust the Holy Spirit within us to guide and protect. Lord, we, we do want to lay down our lives for you, <clears throat> and we confess that we see ourselves doing it quite dramatically. And, and at our worst, we see ourselves doing it to our own glory. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay down our lives a bit at a time so that we, we will not even be tempted to find glory for ourselves, but rather we would find glory for you. We would increase your name. We would increase your renown. We would increase the kingdom and its reach as one act of love and mercy, one act of hospitality at a time. We show that there is something to this Jesus story. Lord, we pray that this church in this year would be a place where your love is shown consistently in big ways and small, and you are lifted up. In your holy name we pray. Amen.